Welcome to the Gospel Journey Podcast. The Gospel Journey exists to help our people get into discipling relationships that are centered on God's Word and led by His Spirit. We are in week six of Path 7, 1 Timothy chapter 1. My name is Ben Robin. I'm here with Jamie Trussell and Damon Conley. Maybe it'd be helpful for us to just summarize as we start into this new book, 1 Timothy, kind of what, give an overview of, of what the book is actually talking about and dealing with. Jamie, can you do that for us? Yeah, so 1 Timothy, written between 62 and 66 AD, most likely, is to Paul's spiritual son, as he would call him, Timothy. This is the first of three pastoral letters, which include 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Now, Timothy had been commissioned by Paul to pastor the church at Ephesus. Now Paul's writing, so Paul's left, he's writing back to Timothy in his post as pastor and elder, is writing to encourage and exhort him uh, in the midst of a church that's facing great difficulty. So he'll charge Timothy to live a godly life, a courageous life, uh, that he'll urge him to stand firm against false teachers, he'll, he'll help him shape and know how to establish church leadership while wrapping that up in the need for Timothy himself to stay focused on pursuing a godly lifestyle. Yeah, it feels like this letter in particular of Paul's is one of the most extended on sort of how to do church, if you will. Um, you know, you have the officers and their qualifications. You even have uh, specific details on how to pray, who to pray for, how to interact with each other in different ages and stages of life, how to treat your leaders. There's just a lot in here about um, just the ordinary church life that we're all a part of. Yeah, and it's important to remember that this gospel journey, uh, we're, we're talking about becoming a gospel people, mm-hmm. and coming off of our last uh, uh, book of Ephesians also showed us about the shaping of the church, uh, and oftentimes at a cosmic scale, First Timothy gets more down into the nuts and bolts of kind of the logistics and operation of the local body. Yep, and as a coming from the Ephesians, how we saw... Uh, you know, the the order about this mystery of Christ through Jew and Gentile, heaven and earth, husband and wife. Yeah. Uh, we get the order of the church and how that has everything to do with the revelation of this mystery of Christ to the world, how the church is ordered with proper leadership and things of that nature. And so I think uh, this is an incredible, incredible book, especially when you think about church culture now and how we are. Most churches are following after, you know, what's what's popular. I think First Timothy uh, gives us insight of how to stick to sound doctrine in a world full of, of different um, myths and things of that nature. Yeah, that's really well said, Damon. I, I feel like one of the mega themes of this path, Path 7, Becoming a Gospel People, like you were talking about, Jamie, is that not only is the Christian life individual, so um, I do need to personally uh, repent of my sins and believe in Jesus Christ and continue to do so so that I might have a relationship with God. Uh, and you all do need to do that personally as well, as well as everybody else in the world who would be saved. That is a personal, individual thing, absolutely. And yet, in the New Testament, one thing we see over and over and over again is that there, there's this corporate nature of the Christian life as well. So it's both individual and corporate. I'm, it, it's not the case that the church is just a bunch of people, uh, individuals with their personal Lord and Savior. Right now, that's true, but we are doing this Christian life as God's family, as God's group, God's people. We're doing this thing together. There are so many commands throughout the letters we're reading and the rest of the New Testament that you couldn't possibly obey by yourself. Yes, and so we're just thinking about that as we uh, become more and more a gospel people. Yeah, and as as we're meeting in groups and and oftentimes even, you know, the young twenties or or people coming up through college now who who 
really are rooted in the idea that I don't need the church to be a Christian, I would I would agree with that statement in the sense of yes, you you can be redeemed by Jesus and be saved. Uh, uh, you don't have to go to church for that to be, or be a member of a church for that to be actualized in your life. But the all other reality is, you are you have a cap on your spiritual growth and maturity and ability to be like Christ. If you think this idea of Lone Ranger Christianity is somehow biblically endorsed, yeah, and, and the so, idea of a Christian without a church in the New Testament is just a foreign concept. It, it, do, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense in the New Testament. Now I can see how you get there in our individualistic, uh, kind of centered society now, but. But yeah, so it, it's kind of a frustrating thing to go, well, of course nobody's saying you have to be a church member to be saved, but we are saying necessarily and unequivocally you cannot mature into Christ's likeness unless you are part of a body of believers. Yeah, and once you're saved, you're saved into God's family, into God's group among this, this other people, just as Damon was that's saying. That's right, that's a great point. Yeah. Christ has covered our sins and joined us to a people. Yes, so let's get right into First Timothy chapter 1, and Damon, as you were saying earlier, this book is so packed with rich, good doctrine and gospel truth, and I felt like chapter 1 was no exception. Uh, right out, out of the gate, in verse 3 through verse 5, Paul, Paul issues this first charge to Timothy that he would teach sound doctrine, uh, that he would teach right doctrine to true doctrine according to the Bible, according to the gospel, according to who Jesus is, who God is, and that he would do so in a specific way, in love. And so that's the first sort of command and maybe the overarching command from Paul to Timothy. Teach sound doctrine, do it in love. Yeah, sound doctrine, um, many scholars would say, is love, to be able to teach uh, sound doctrine. And I think that, as you said, this being the opening charge really sets the groundwork for everything else that Paul is going to give to Timothy. Um, during this time, as, as Paul is writing, uh, there are a lot of uh, people who uh, became deceivers who were inside the fellowship who began to teach false doctrines, and they were teaching things, um, different uh, stories, different uh, genealogies that had nothing to do with the fundamental truths of this gospel message of Jesus Christ coming to save sinners. So it was disheartening for people who were inside of a fellowship to then begin teaching other things. And so Paul telling Timothy, hey, Stick to the sound doctrine is important uh, for for the church to be together, but also for you to watch over your life, as he would say in, in chapter four. Mm -hmm. um, this sound doctrine is so important, and I think it's vital uh, for us as as the people of God today to not uh, begin to teach to itchy ears that we would teach the word of God the way that God meant it to be taught, and that's rightly dividing it and um, and and it's hard and it's offensive, but. I think is necessary if we're going to love people well. Yeah, and I think you get, I mean, honestly, all the way from verse 3 through 11, it's really the heart and call of pastoral ministry. I mean, if the aim of our charge is love, is is a verse that is, is a, I mean, it's hard to actualize because you start getting into leading people or interacting with people, and sometimes it's really difficult to love. It's mm -hmm. actually much more easier to teach people a set of beliefs and say, believe this, and and here at the very beginning of his first pastoral epistle, Paul's grounding Timothy in the reality of pastoral ministry. The aim of our charge is love. And at the end of the day, when we ever get away from that, we step into either we become a dictator or or we we become harsh or crazy. I mean, it, it's the aim of our charge is love. What's interesting about sound doctrine 
is if you go all the way down to the end of this section in verses 10 and 11, uh, uh, biblically considered sound doctrine is not simply a set of beliefs, but it's a set of behaviors. Yes. So sound doctrine is is always linked to sound living. So to have one without the other, they actually become mutually exclusive. There's Absolutely. no such thing as sound doctrine that isn't practically impacting our growth into Christ likeness. No, you're right. You know, as we look at the scriptures, uh, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, mm-hmm. strength. You know, doctrine, love your neighbor as yourself would be the practice of that where people can visibly see that, as you said, Jamie. And I think the other part, too, that is so important for us about this aspect of love and this aspect of sound doctrine is John thirteen thirty five says um, that men will know that you are my disciples by how you love one another. And so um, very, very important that we teach sound doctrine properly um, so that we can, you know, show people that we, that we do love them by mm-hmm. teaching them what's right. Mm-hmm. And then I think what's also interesting too, in this five, he says the aim of our charge uh, that love issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So I, I think that's, you know, something we should unpack in terms of, you know, the heart, having a pure heart uh, as we are, you know, teaching this gospel in love, you know, with a good conscience, a, a inner uh, awareness of our actions. And then, you know, in faith, a sincere faith is, you know, not there's no hypocrisy in what we're doing. So to make sure our motivation uh, is always on Christ and Christ alone and nothing else gets uh, in, in, inside of that. Yeah, you, uh, that idea of motive is, is huge because uh, it's easy to be motivated by fear. It's easy to be motivated by the approval of people, to be a people pleaser. To be, I mean, when you get into any, look, you don't have to be in pastoral ministry. If you're leading a gospel journey group, in a sense, that is a role in which you are investing into people. Uh, maybe not as the Bible qualify as a office of pastor, but certainly functioning in a shepherding realm. And it's easy to want to curb what you say and do with people because of if they'll approve you or not, because you're scared if they'll receive you or not. And Paul says, look, the aim of your charge is love. Love them by telling them the truth, by moving each other towards Christ's likeness. And the motive of a pure heart is granted to us through the Holy Spirit yes. in Christ. Yeah, I'm going to put on my best Jamie here for a second and say love, biblically considered, as a phrase you use all the time, and I love it, uh, is not mere tolerance. It's not just accept me as I am. Mm-hmm. That's, That's part good. of the, the picture. But the rest of it is love me so much that you want what's best for me, that you want me to change in the best ways possible, that you want me to become more like Jesus. Yeah, that's rich. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, you should quote me more often. Was that whole thing a quote? Uh, just the biblically considered <laughs> part. All right, never mind. Never mind. But I think I've probably heard you say the rest, the substance of the rest as well. Well, so does the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, moving down into the to the next section, um, just talking about the the alternative to sound doctrine in Timothy's context is what we would call legalism. Um, and I thought, Jamie, you, you put together a really good definition of that in the field guide. I'd love for you to just share that with us just as we get started on this. Well, yeah, and I don't know that I even would say that I came up with this, but I think legalism... Uh, it's any activity we undertake for the sake of earning something from God or because we think it puts us in right standing with God. And so you can literally be, you can have two people doing the exact same thing and one person is falling into legalism and one person simply obeying mm-hmm. Jesus. And so, again, it comes back to what Damon highlighted from the first section. It's a sincere faith. It's purity of heart. It all comes down to the motive. And so you can be doing 
all the right things for all the wrong reasons, and that ultimately computes to the wrong thing. Um, and so, yeah, anytime we feel like if we do X, God will give us Y, mm. we're operating in a legalistic mindset. And incidentally, uh, calling people that we're investing into to obey Jesus uh, does not or should not garner us the charge of legalism. Mm. That's called Christianity. Teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And so... Uh, Sorry, who, who are you quoting there? Damon. Oh, okay. Damon said Whoa. that <laughs> when he read Matthew 28. Oh, okay, yes. okay. okay. Uh, right. G- Jesus said that. That's, that's right. right. Sound doctrine. Getting uh, back yes. to sound doctrine. Okay. I remember. <laughs> but And so we're really quick. I think... I think uh, uh, claiming legalism is a way to wiggle out of dealing uh-huh. with your sin when somebody else is pointing it out to you. And the reality is... You better oh, be careful. People are going to get the pitchforks out, man. Well, I, I can see the torches coming. You know, people have torched me before. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think that legalism, uh, the reason why it's so anti-gospel is because it's earning. And, and look, the gospel is not opposed to effort, but it is opposed to earning. Well said. Yeah, that's incredible. It's interesting that um, Paul's not only saying to Timothy, teach sound doctrine. He's also saying, Timothy, make sure that everybody else is teaching sound doctrine. So the issue in his context is people are teaching that you must obey the law to be right with God. And so in their, in their context, um, we, we're, I'm getting that from verse 8 and on. Yeah. No, knowing that the law is good, but it must be used lawfully. Uh, and so you have these people, probably Jews, uh, maybe Jews who are saying that they've become Christians, or maybe just Jews who are saying that in order to be a Christian, you must become a Jew first. That That's the sort of legalistic idea that, that they're dealing with. And we have our own legalisms of today, uh, maybe not that one in particular. But yeah, just as Jamie said, anything that we would do that we think would earn God's favor, uh, or that we would be maybe encouraged by uh, our doing, such that it affects our relationship with God positively. So Man, I had a good quiet time today, and I really feel like God loves me today, mm. especially. Mm-hmm. I had a bad one yesterday, or I didn't have one, I forgot, mm-hmm. and I just didn't really feel like God loved me as much. That's a great example. That becomes so weighty, you know, if that's the balance of your life is, you know, as you said, trying to earn, you know, this. Uh, uh, using the example of Jesus game, I had a great quiet time today, so, man, everything is well. I didn't have it for two days in a row. Or again, whatever that battle is, that becomes weighty, and that's why I, we need to make sure that we uh, really put this into the people who we are uh, using as a field guide for, is that, man, our righteousness is in Christ. It is in Christ alone. It is not in, in, in the works of the law, but it is in Christ alone. He fulfilled all those things, and so we rest in him, in that, and not in what we get to do to try to earn something. And the way to find balance, which Jamie's absolutely right, is that what I just said is true, but that doesn't mean it doesn't matter if I have a quiet time or not. It's still a good thing to do it. It's a great thing to do. And and the fact, Damon, just as you said, the fact that Christ is our righteousness motivates me to want to have communion with him every morning when I wake up. That's right. And it's all out of love. It's all out of love, and it's not out of duty, which I know that's another kind of uh, juxtaposition that you know we don't kind of understand duty versus doing something you know out of this overflow of joy and love which uh, i think is something that you know should be discussed as as we're walking through this as well well and damon i'm going back to a point you made earlier um in quoting the great the greatest commandment when christ says you love god and love people those are joined together with a conjunction and so they're inseparable 
And so uh, to segue that to this, I would say if you wonder, do you operate like this is or not, a really good indicator is what do your human relationships look like. So, so there's a great chance if you, if other people have to earn your love, uh, uh, humanly speaking, then you're actually operating like that with God too. Yeah. That you're feeling like you're having to earn His love, or somehow He's indebted to you because of what you've done. And so, are uh, to use your terms, horizontal relationships with other people are great indicators with actually the the logistics in which we undertake a relationship with God. Damon, let's let's work through a specific example. So so let's say I'm discipling a guy who is really wrestling with pornography. He doesn't want to look at it. He's confessed it to me and, and that's a great thing. What would be a gospel centered, grace based uh, approach as opposed to a legalistic one to fight that sin? So so should I tell him well, hey, let's let's get rid of your cell phone. Let's uh, let's cut off your internet connection. Is, is that legalistic? Is that gospel centered? What specifically would you counsel me to do? Yeah, that's a great one. I think the on the surface, I think the the, the legalistic approach would be, hey, give me your phones, give me your computers, cut off the internet. Um, which I I think personally, at least, to more of a behavior modification piece, where if I take this away from you, and all the variables that has caused you to fall into uh, this sin or a way, then obviously you won't be able to do it. Uh, I do think, though, the first thing is figuring out wh- where is your heart in this matter? What What is leading you to run to this sin uh, with this uh, case specifically, pornography? Like, what what is the, the, the triggers for you? Is it stress? Is it too much idle time? Figuring out that part and, and figuring out, okay, if you know that Christ died for your sins, Every time, you know, you, that you're doing this, this is, you know, um, basically saying that, you know, that, that Christ's death on the cross is almost like you turn your nose up at that, right? Mm-hmm. So just get into the heart, right? I think taking, you know, devices, if, if necessary, is, is something. But I don't think that's my lead off. I think my lead off is where's your heart and then monitor, you know, how, how this is keep coming up uh, so that in, in a way of grace, that they could see that, man, that, that this is a heart issue. This is not a device issue. This is not you know, a computer issue. This is where your heart's at. And I think both you could do both of those at the same time, but I don't think just merely stripping somebody's devices away is going to keep that person. Um, it's, it's not going to take the sin away of that pornography. Yeah, I would echo what Damon said. I'd, I would probably just phrase it like, I still think doing all that is good. Take away the device, get rid of it. And I think that's a good approach, but it's incomplete. And so, uh, look, you still, it's still better not to sin than to sin. And so it's like, you know, if I had a friend who's struggling with a drug addiction, it's still better to immediately get the drugs out of his house. Yeah. Right. And so, but the problem is that's incomplete to Damon's point. So I think that's a good approach. It's just an incomplete approach. You're saying if I don't address the heart, then no matter what I take away, there will be an outlet for sin. Yeah. But it's still good to take it away because it's (laughs) destroying them. Yeah, in, in absolutely. Real time. Absolutely. Yep. And, and, and we do have to deal with the, the, the cut off the hand and gouge out the eye verse, right? Like, I mean, Jesus says, if it's leading you to sin, get rid of it. So there is some biblical precedent for even removing devices or internet connections. But, but yeah, you're absolutely right. If I don't address the heart, I haven't gone the whole way. Yeah, yeah. I think what helps with the legalism piece, whether it's, you know, ladies or guys struggling with tons of different things, it's when somebody takes that courageous step to tell you their sin. Yes. You have about a point zero five seconds to respond in a way that's either going to allow them to keep confessing their sin to you 
or to shut down and maybe never go down that road again. And so, uh, and while it can be difficult is we don't ever want to act like whatever someone just told us is the worst possible thing a human could ever confess. That's right. And so it, it, on the other side, when we're receiving somebody's confession of sin, we want to fight to be empathetic and fight to, to uh, put ourselves in an understanding role of saying, hey, I know what that's like, or hey, I've struggled with this too, or I, because as long as that dialogue's open, we can right. get it in the light. That's right. And in, and in that, I think, as you're being, you know, having the empathy, we still have to speak truth. Have to. In love. Do it in love so that they not, they're not feeling like they're being condemned, but so that this could be a sanctifying moment as you continue to walk in it. So. Yeah, there's a big difference between con- the feeling of condemnation yeah. and the feeling of shame. Like, yes. like when I sin, I feel shame. Yes. And there's grace in that. God l- allows me to feel that way that I might not do it anymore. He doesn't want me to feel condemned. There yes. is therefore now no condemnation Great. for yeah. those who are in Christ I'm Jesus. I'm so glad you said that because it dri- honestly, it drives me crazy when somebody's confessing sin and telling me they feel guilty over it. And someone's first response is, well, you don't need to feel guilt over that. And I, and I want to say, well, no, yes, you do. Paul right. talks about, specifically, Paul says, there is a guilt or a grief that leads to godliness. Yes. And so That's it's right. not that we should, you know, it's not like magically, Damon, don't ever feel guilty about your sin. <laughs> I would say, Thanks, if you man. don't feel guilty about your sin, you probably don't know Jesus. Yeah. But don't stay stuck in the guilt and feel condemnation. Let that, Paul's very clear, that is a motivating impetus towards godliness. Amen, brother. In my mind, this segues perfectly toward the end of chapter one. Martin Luther had a phrase, a Latin phrase, simul justus et peccator. Yep, you lost me. Which means, it's translated in English, (laughs) simultaneously just and sinful. And, and I, I hear that Paul saying that exact same in substance thing in verses 15 and 16. So he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I, Paul, am the foremost. But I have received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And I feel like our tendency is to lose one of the sides of that equation. Either we're just or we're sinful. Mm. Whereas Luther and Paul are saying it's both at the same time. Jesus is not doing in our lives something that causes us to need him and the cross less. Mm. He's not trying to get us in some weird perverse way towards um, sinless perfection in this life. We will be sinless in glory, but we shouldn't expect each other to be sinless in this life. Like, and what I hear you saying, Jamie, when you say your first reaction towards someone confessing to you is the most important, is this. The church should be a, an atmosphere, a place where we understand that we're sinful and we all need Jesus. And we don't expect Jesus to get us to a place where we need him less. You know, there's so many encouraging passages in Scripture. And I think this is one of those. As Paul is writing this, he didn't say he came to the world to save sinners of whom I was the foremost. He said, I am. Yeah. And so this is Paul um, who has written most of the New Testament. Paul who, you know, had a formal life where he crucified, you know, he persecuted the church, um, had a great resume when you look at Philippians, you know, three as he walks through, you know, all of his accolades. But he says that I am. And so as as, as you see this, if, if Christ could save a guy like Paul, 
think this is encouraging for anyone <laughs> that he would save us. And and as we continue to grow in our godliness, that we continue to see the cross bigger and bigger That's and right. bigger. Um, the more we mature in the faith, like the cross does not get smaller. We would never, as you say, get to a sinless perfection uh, in this life where the, the cross has diminished the power of it in, in our lives. But as I continue to mature, man, I see I see what Christ did on the cross for me even bigger and more extravagant than it was when I first came to know him. And I think that's what Paul is trying to convey here. Yeah, we're becoming more and more acquainted with just how sinful we actually yes. are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And Damon, I love what you said, specifically on what, what Paul said, I am, I am the chief of all sinners, uh, because, look, I, we can actually take that, I think, the wrong way, and, and here's what I mean by that, is, so, so we're in a little bit of a celebrity culture, we're fascinated with stories, we're fascinated with these, what we consider to be these, uh, 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 miraculous, I can't believe God would save that person, you know, like, that, the reality is all salvation is miraculous, and the problem is we almost have created degrees of lostness, if that makes sense. And so, oui. and so, just to encourage people in your gospel journey groups, you know, I know sometimes we share testimonies, talk about you know how we were before Jesus and what God's done in our lives and who we are now in Christ. Is like some of us don't have the uh, entertainment value testimony. Oh wow! To put. To put, and maybe that's crass. I'm no, not, that's, that's good. Uh, that's good. Uh, you mean you mean somebody? You know, some of us aren't. I was in jail before I knew Christ, or I was a drug addict before yeah, I knew Christ. And, and I'm not saying like, I love hearing those stories yeah, because it's just like, oh my goodness, look at God at work. But some of our testimonies are a little more mundane. And but but I want us to remember something: we're all equally lost. By, and by mundane, you mean. Um, we might we might use that word to describe. I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up in a Christian home. Grew up in a grew up in a family. Yeah, exactly. And we somehow f- we're not as captured by those stories. And my encouragement to all of us is to to as best we can let's be equally as captured by God's redemption of all of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, it might not have the flair or the or the spark or the, or the wow factor involved, but that's usually because. Uh, we're more man-centered in our testimonies than we are God-centered. And a testimony is not about us. It's about what God did. Mm. And as long as we remember that in our testimonies, I think we'll start to realize that that, salvation uh, is something we praise God for, whether we grew up in a Christian home or were saved at seven, or whether we were addicted to drugs and leading a gang at 40. Yeah, uh, yep. you know, uh, does that make sense? What I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. Can y'all clarify that so it doesn't sound so harsh? Because I'm not at all trying to be. Well, I wouldn't clarify anything. I would just affirm and say the point you're making, Jamie, is really important to me personally. As someone who was not raised in a Christian home, I just see God's faithfulness in those testimonies that He would pass on. Mm-hmm. He would use parents, godly parents, to pass on the faith to their children, and He would preserve those little ones in faith from a young age until now, however old they are now. I mean, that's just an amazing testimony of God's mm-hmm. grace and, and ability to save. I love that. That's not my story. Sometimes I wish it was. Mm. I mean, I could have been saved from a lot of folly later in life. I mean, that's just powerful. I mean, I don't think there's anything really uh, to add to that, but you're right. I think we uh, need to make sure that we realize that those testimonies, they are what Christ did and what he's continuing to do. And I think that's what Paul is trying to get at, that, you know, I am, you know, I am chief of sinners. 
doesn't mean that he was trying to <clears throat> kind of speak in a lackadaisical term to have some kind of false humility. He just, I'm, I'm, I'm more uh, acknowledging my sin daily, and I yeah. realize how bad that is, but yet I'm continuing to, to press on to endure. Yeah, hey, great discussion today. So thankful for God's faithfulness to us and our own salvations and to hopefully the people in the groups uh, that we're leading as we start to uh, walk through First Timothy and continue next week seeing these calls towards sound doctrine, towards this charge of love, towards not uh, uh, pursuing false teaching, and just understanding the reality of our daily desperate need for God's grace as we are uh, focusing on uh, becoming a gospel people.